everyone. It's your host, Polly Siegel. And for anyone who doesn't know me, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, certified addiction specialist, and master level trained mindfulness practitioner. I own a counseling practice in both Colorado and Illinois, and I specialize in trauma, OCD, and anxiety. If you live in either of those two states, feel free to reach out to me for a consultation and we can begin the therapeutic journey together. Now on to the good shit. Welcome to season three of Shit Talking Shrinks. Gosh, I'm so excited. I will be featuring experts in the healing space and we're discussing a variety of mental health topics, the human experience, and society at large while creating levity along the way. Get ready to laugh, learn a lot, and change your life for good. Hello, everyone. Another kick-ass episode of Shit Talking Shrinks. I have a great guest who... Honestly, I love when guests hear the podcast and then reach out and want to provide value. I actually like that better than when I reach out to other folks. So I am just happy that you entered my world, Krista. I'm very happy when anyone wants to talk about grief, by the way. So I am very happy. There's a lot of juice to squeeze from that. But first, you need a formal introduction. So today, I have Krista St. Germain. She is a post-traumatic growth and grief expert, also the host of the Widowed Mom podcast. So you are in the podcasting world and do a lot of work in grief and helping people move through grief. And I think it comes in so many different forms. Like we sometimes view grief in this one way, like we've lost someone, but I think grief comes in a lot of different variations and manifestation. So for anyone, even though this might seem silly, what does it mean to be grieving? Like, what does that actually mean? I love that we're asking that question because I think so often we start talking about grief and we're all talking about different things. I am typically working in the bereavement space. So I work with women who have lost their partners. But grief is so much more than that. I think of it as the natural human response to a perceived loss. And there are so many different things that we experience as perceived losses individually. So it might be, you know, you expected your career to go one way and it didn't. You expected your child to grow up and have a particular life and they didn't, you know, and then everything in between, of course, death loss. But it's natural. It's normal. It happens to all of us. And unfortunately, we live in a culture that doesn't really talk about it very much. And so a lot of us find ourselves like I did in positions where all of a sudden grief is there and what we thought we knew about it isn't actually all that accurate or all that helpful, which is why I love conversations like this. And so, you know, for the purpose of our conversation, we're probably going to be focusing more on, you know, death and bereavement. But for anyone who needs to feel seen, it really does come in all different forms. You know, I've worked with clients who have lost their job and they're grieving. They had a horrible breakup and they're grieving. And so, you know, I'm sure we could do a million other episodes on all the different types of grief. Or sometimes even it's a good thing, right? Like you hit like a goal and then grief. You know, you expect that, okay, I'm going to lose all of this weight and, you know, I'll, I'll just feel so confident or I'm going to make all this money and my life will be perfect, right? You have this idea of what an outcome will be and then you get there. And it's not what you thought it would be. And that's grief too. But yes, all kinds, so many valuable conversations could be had on the topic. So if you had to define grief as an experience, as an emotion, what is it? I think about it as all the thoughts and feelings 
that we have about the perceived loss. So yes, it can be an emotion, but to me, it's a much more useful way to think of it as as an umbrella term for the whole experience. Because if we limit it to just an emotion, we miss out on what grief is for most of us, which is complex, so many different emotions. If we think grief only means sadness or longing or yearning, and then we find ourselves experiencing some sort of loss, and then also subsequently noticing moments of joy, we will tend to then judge ourselves, tell ourselves something's gone wrong, we're not doing grief right, right? So I think it is just an umbrella term for all the thoughts and feelings that we have after a loss. And so I know that a lot of people are probably familiar with the five stages of grief or recently I've even heard seven stages. And for anyone who can't see Krista's face, she's shaking her head, watch our YouTube. (laughs) I want to get into it. I'm sensing that you're skeptical. It's a combination. I am grateful that Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and David Kessler did that pioneering work. But also it was done when I was a very small child and I'm 47. It was anecdotal work done on hospice patients who were coming to terms with a terminal diagnosis. Okay. So that's a very specific niche population. Yes. And at that time, people weren't really talking about what that was like. So it was really, really valuable. But On Death and Dying was the first work. But even Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in her later years really regretted how people took her work and turned it into something that was, you know, linear, something that implied that there was an end to grief. You know, like all I have to do is just go through these five stages. And then if I come to this place of acceptance, poof, the rainbow will appear and, you know, I'm all better. And that was never really her intention. And there's been so many interesting theories about grief since then. But somehow as a culture, we caught on to the five stages and it's what we hear everywhere. I even heard not too long ago when the fires happened in Lahaina in Maui, I heard a reporter on the ground and he said, I'm seeing the five stages of grief everywhere in front of me. And I just wanted to like reach through the screen and like punch him because I get it. (laughs) And also stop it. It doesn't reflect the experience most of us have. And then we end up comparing ourselves and wondering why we're wrong because it's not that way. One of many ideas about grief. It's old. Yeah. So in your expertise and humble opinion, what are the shortcomings of viewing grief as five stages, as seven stages? First of all, I don't think grief ever ends. So I think we want to stop using language that implies that it does, because we're always going to have thoughts and feelings about the loss, whatever the loss is, death or non-death. We can't undo the loss and we're always going to have thoughts and feelings about it. So we're always going to experience a grief around the loss. Also, I don't think that acceptance is a place or a one-time thing. You might have the primary loss, whatever it is that happened. Then there's all these other secondary losses that we can't even anticipate when we have the primary loss, right? And so, yes, we might have one and then process that, come to terms with that, be okay with that. But it's really not so much an acceptance as it is an integration. This happened and I go from thinking about it unintentionally to thinking about who I want to be intentionally given that it happened, right? Integrating it into the fabric of my life as opposed to moving on from it, being done with it. I just don't particularly like anything that implies it's 18 holes of golf and we're done. That's hilarious. Yeah. For me, like I'm the A student. 
So when I came into my own grieving experience, thinking about the five stages, I was really like, okay, I'm going to get an A in this too. So am I angry enough? Am I denying enough? What is bargaining supposed to look like? Like, right, I did all these comparison things, trying to fit a really unique experience into a very sterile box and then wondering why it didn't feel right to me. And I don't want us to do that. I think everybody's grief experience is as unique as a fingerprint. You can't do it wrong. There's no way to do it right. If we continue comparing our experience with something we've read in a book as though it should look that way when it doesn't, it just creates more suffering and it's unnecessary. I want to take a quick pause to talk about our sponsor, a company called BetterHelp. It's an online therapy platform where all the therapists are licensed and accredited professionals. It's affordable. You pay a low flat fee for therapy with your therapist, and it's convenient. Do it at your own time and at your own pace, and you can communicate with your therapist as much as you want and whenever you feel is needed. And more importantly, it's effective. Thousands of people have benefited from therapy using BetterHelp. And we're really grateful to offer all of our listeners 10% off your first month. So if you're interested in receiving therapy ASAP, click the link in our show notes and you can get started and you get to save money. I really want to come back to that term acceptance that's used in that model because I think, and this is the pain point, when we view that word, it means that we're okay, we're over it. We're at peace with it. Like acceptance denotes that sort of experience. And how could you really be over losing someone? How could you really be at peace with losing someone? Like that just doesn't fucking make sense. No, it really doesn't. And I don't even think that's what most people want, right? I think most people want to stop maybe arguing with that the loss happened, but also that doesn't look like I'm so glad it happened or I'm at peace that it happened or it was a blessing. Right. You can hate that it happened and still want it to have not happened and also decide who you want to be given that it happened. And that's what I think we're going for. You know, now kind of everyone having an understanding around, okay, so these models are old. They're not really up to date. They have a lot of shortcomings or limitations. How do you view grief or how would you invite someone to? work through grief in a more modernized way or a more helpful way? I think it's not so much about you know, telling them how it will look as it is about preparing them for how it might look so that they don't question their sanity quite so much. And so for me, what I think would have been really valuable to hear in the past would have been, first of all, what was going on in my brain in grief. So, you know, in the beginning, it's different for everyone, but in the beginning, it can be really intense. You know, you're not sleeping as well. Your hormones are out of whack. Your processing ability is greatly diminished. So you might have like this grief fog where it feels like cotton candy is in your brain, right? So many things are just off. It's very surreal feeling. And then there are these moments where your brain is doing what your brain needs to do. But if you don't know that, you can start to feel like there's something wrong with you. It's like this where the garage door opens and you hear it. You intellectually know that it's not them, but yet for a moment you think it could be. Or you pick up the phone to text them and you start to type the text and you know you can't, but yet you picked up the phone or you pat the pillow in the middle of the night and you expect them to be there, but they're not. And so it's this very weird feeling of knowing they're not away on a business trip, right? Knowing that the loss actually did happen, but yet not really feeling it in your body. 
And that's because what the brain needs to do over time is it needs to repredict with new and updated information. When it's a significant loss, our brain has encoded the idea of when we're going to see that person again, where they are. And then when they're just automatically, surprisingly gone, it's like very disorienting to our brain who over time has built up this ability to predict when and where we're going to see them again. So as time is passing and the brain is having more exposures to the new reality of their loss, you feel like a little bit like a crazy person. I want more people to know that. That's completely normal. The yearning, that longing, that is your brain's way of trying to help you find this person or this thing right? that was important to you. doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you because that's happening. Also, though, I think it's valuable to know while time does need to pass, that's not the only thing that needs to happen. Because so many times I see people who have been told, just get through the first year. Just keep yourself busy. I was told that at Hugo's funeral. People told me that. Just stay busy. Well, yes and no, right? If all you do is white knuckle your way and you don't ever allow yourself to process what you're feeling or think about it, right? Talk about it figure out how to cope with it, then time will go by. And yes, your brain will relearn, but also that shit waits, right? And then that's when you see people getting to the one-year mark and going, oh, okay, this really is real. I actually don't feel like I thought I was going to feel. What's wrong with me? Is this the way it's going to be forever? Because they just gripped so hard and clamped down in the immediate days of grief instead of figuring out, okay, how am I going to support myself here? How am I going to get the tools that I need if I don't have them? You mentioned Hugo. Yeah. Is that something you can share more of? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's how I came to this work in the first place, right? So I was 40, second marriage. First one went down in flames. Second one was amazing. It was like that everything has finally clicked kind of feeling. And then we were coming home from a trip and we had driven separately and I had a flat tire on my car and I pulled over on the side of the interstate and he pulled over behind me. He did not want to call AAA, very stubborn engineer that he was, you know, maybe I'll just change the tire myself. So he's trying to get into my trunk to get the tire, the spare tire. And then I'm on the side of the road texting my daughter who was 12 at the time to tell her we'd be late. And a driver didn't see us, didn't see our hazard lights, just crashed right into the back of his car. The driver also had meth and alcohol in his system, 5.30 on a Sunday. So I just went from this place of my best days are in front of me to I'll probably never truly be happy again. That was my thinking, right? That's why I'm so passionate about this because I found myself in a place where I was so unprepared. How did you find your way, right? Because it sounds like this was foreign. This was like you landed on a new planet and you're like, I've got to fucking figure this out and I don't even know anything about this. Thankfully, I had a really good therapist. So from my divorce, I had gone to see a therapist that I had a great relationship with. I hadn't seen her in a long time, but I was back in her office real fast. And so that gave me the space to just talk about it and get it out, eventually help it feel real in my brain. I didn't really want to talk about it with people that I cared about because I felt like I was burdening them. So I was so grateful to have her and to be able to just have that space where I could just puke it all out. Journaling was really helpful for me in the early days. And I did a lot of writing to him. I was so petrified of losing memories. And so I wrote a lot of them down. That really helped me. Time in nature on my back porch, time with my feet actually on the ground, 
those things were all very helpful. I had a really supportive community at work. We worked together at the same company. He'd been there for 20 years. I'd only been there for 10. So everyone I worked with felt that loss much more so than most people's work environments do. So I had a really great community of support, really great friends, but it was a combination of a lot of those things. I did reach that place though. I now call it a grief plateau. It's that place where you kind of have gone back to normal in terms of the way that your day is going. You're back to work. You're handling the to-dos. You're getting your kids where they need to be. Everybody has kind of assuming that you're, you look okay, so you must be okay. And they're saying things like, oh, you're so strong and you're doing so great. And inside, that's not the experience that you're having, right? Where inside you're like, is this it? Is this what it's going to be like? Is this, is this what they talk about when they say new normal? Because if so, this kind of sucks, right? Because I can't really imagine that I could be truly happy again. I know I'm going to survive, but is that it? And it was kind of at that point when I discovered different tools that I wasn't learning in therapy that were more coaching related that really started helping me at that point. And so that's kind of why I leaned into the tools that I now teach. Like I had never heard the term post-traumatic growth. I mean, I'm going to be real and this might be embarrassing to admit. I've never heard that term. I know, right? We all talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. We talk about post-traumatic stress, but we don't talk about post-traumatic growth. Yeah. So post-traumatic growth is a term that was actually coined in the mid 90s. Who knew? (laughs) By a couple of researchers, Tedeschi and Calhoun were their last names. And they actually, some of their studies were based on widows. They were noticing that there were some people who were experiencing something that at that time, they were kind of using a definition of trauma that was like less subjective and more of like a list of things, you know? And some people were experiencing a a level of wellness after that traumatic event that was worse than pre-traumatic event but staying there at that lower level. Some people were experiencing that lower level, but then kind of coming back to the level of wellness that they had experienced before the event. And there was this third group of people who actually seemed to not just be bouncing back, but bouncing forward, meaning that they were reporting greater levels of satisfaction after the trauma, but not in spite of it, actually because of it. Like They had taken what had happened to them and then used it to inform the way that they lived so that they were living lives that were even more aligned with what they valued and what they wanted. Not that they were grateful necessarily for what happened, but they had taken it and kind of used it to inventory the way that they lived and adjust accordingly. It almost sounds like it's taking the trauma and the resiliency and the grit that comes from that, carrying it with you and being able to still find vitality. Yeah. And making choices because of it. Like, I live in Kansas. So the way that I like to think about it is like, if a tornado comes and knocks down your house, which happens here, this this is what happened to me. Like a tornado came in and knocked down my marriage, right? It took him away from me. Well, if your house gets knocked down, you're going to need to find somewhere to live. So you could just try to rebuild the house as close to the house that you had before. That would be fine. Also though, if you've lived there for any given amount of time, you probably learned some things, right? Maybe you don't want the house to be that big. Maybe you want it to be smaller. Maybe you want more light in the kitchen or like a different layout in your master bath. Like, you know, you've learned some things. So you could also pause and take the opportunity to redesign the house so that you're taking into account your life experience. And for me, that meant, am I in the career I want to be in? If life is this short and this precious, is this the impact I want to make on the world? Is this the way I want to spend my days? And what were you doing at that time? 
We both worked for a company called Bombardier Learjet. Hugo was an engineer. He loved planes, totally his passion. I was in project management. I supervised project managers. Not my passion. Loved the people. I don't care about planes. To me, it was about you know the people and the working together on the projects to make things happen. But it never really felt like it filled my soul, right? Like, was I in relationships that I wanted to be in? You know, you kind of start to reassess. Are you spending time with people that you actually want to spend time with? Or are you just spending time with them because you always did? It's like this reevaluation. Yes. Yeah. Like, what's your spiritual life like? Have you just swallowed what you grew up in, but it's not really what you believe or, or what's working for you? Reevaluate. It's like this record scratch moment where if you want to, and again, you don't have to be happy it happened, you can stop and go, okay, reassess adjust, pivot. I hate to use this word because I think this word paired with grief and bereavement might sound funky, but it's in some ways a gift. I'm not saying the person passing was a gift. I'm saying the reevaluation, the reassessment, the pivoting that you're allowed in to do when you have clarity is a gift, right? Is that fair to say? I think it is fair to say. And I think it's also fair to say it's not morally superior, right? Post-traumatic growth. It's not a should. It's just something, if it, you want, is available. And do you find that people that step into post-traumatic growth as they're grieving tend to have more satisfaction than people that don't? Yes, <laughs> I do. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, do I want to make that categorical statement? Yes, I really do. I do. I think that when you, you know, I don't know about you, but I can tell you that especially up until Hugo died, I can look back now and see how much of my life was just lived because I thought that's the way you were supposed to live your life. We are all bought and sold in a culture, these ideas about what you're supposed to do and how life is supposed to be lived. And so whenever we can take the opportunity to stop and reassess for ourselves how we actually want to live life, a lot of the work that I end up doing with people isn't so much about who they lost or the loss itself, it can be about what have you been believing about your body all these years, right? What have you been believing about money all of these years? It really has to do with so many other things that we've just been living life not knowing are guiding us and kind of shining a light on them and rechoosing them. What's coming up for me in what you just said is that classic question that people will ask, like if you knew that tomorrow was your last day, how would you live? I mean, I think that's it, right? I think that's it. When you're just happy, happy, unaware, just going through the day, you don't really have any necessarily impetus to pause and ask yourself that question. And then somebody gets a diagnosis, somebody dies, something major happens, something you just took for granted gets taken away from you. That's the opportunity to then go, oh, wait, am I? What needs to change? Do you think that that's a helpful question to keep in mind as you navigate life? 100%, right? Like, look back at my own life and I'm like, how much earlier would I have gotten out of that marriage if I had felt like I could, right? And been asking myself, do I really want to be here? Yeah. No regrets. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, I think we do want to keep constantly asking ourselves, like, is this the life I want? If I'm the one in charge of designing, what I create today and tomorrow, then maybe I don't want to do that on autopilot. 
we think about grief as only doom and gloom. And I think what we've just talked about the last 15 minutes is that there can be a lot of lightness, a lot of the ability to still find the sunshine in life. And that reevaluation comes with that because you get new opportunities and new privileges and new, new gifts. You know, I don't mean actual physical gifts, but just new gifts of life by being able to view it that way. And it also doesn't mean that you wanted the loss to happen, right? That you're glad it did. I got a DM from one of my clients the other day and she didn't want to post it in public because she was like, am I weird? Like, I am really actually really happy right now. Like things are going very well and I'm feeling really good. And I'm almost afraid to say that because is there something wrong with me? Like, am I doing grief right? Is this normal? You know, those are the kinds of questions she's asking me. If we could like listen to this podcast in advance, which they will, thankfully, and then later know that no, like post-traumatic growth and really loving life, continuing to make the choice to love life, continuing to align yourself with what you want more of in your life is to me, the goal of being human. like Grief is happening all the time. Nobody gets out of life without grief. And it's going to happen multiple times. If we're prepared for it and we know that it doesn't mean doom and gloom forever, yes, it's okay to be sad. Yes, it doesn't really end. And also, we never lose our ability to choose who we want to be. So I want to segue into tangible tools section of the episode you know, I think we've highlighted a lot of the beautiful aspects, obviously acknowledging the deep sorrow and pain and despair that comes along with grief. If someone has recently lost someone, where do they start? Where do you invite them to show up? So let me say broadly that I really like the dual process model of grief. And then maybe we can talk about a couple of specifics within that. So the dual process model of grief divides Activities post-loss into two buckets. So one bucket would be grief-related. So thinking about the loss, feeling your feelings, doing things related to the loss. And then the other bucket of activities would be restoration-oriented. So non-loss activities, taking a break, having hobbies, going to work, distraction, Netflix binges, gardening, like anything but the loss. If you're early in grief, know that this model proposes, which is why I like it, that healing comes from the intentional oscillation between both buckets, back and forth, back and forth. So we want to give ourselves permission to think about it and to feel it and to have it staring us in the face. And then also we want to give ourselves permission to not, to intentionally have respite, to laugh, do things that are completely unrelated. And the reason I like this so much is because if we know this, then A, we can plan for the breaks. And B, when we notice ourselves having breaks that we didn't plan for, we'll be less inclined to judge ourselves, which is why I see a lot of people holding themselves back from those restorative activities because they have ideas about what it means to do grief right as though there is such a thing. And so they think it must be grief all the time as opposed to, no, it's totally okay. Plan the breaks, take the breaks, right? It's great to get out and laugh. Well, what I've heard a lot is I shouldn't be happy. It's wrong for me to have joy. That's disrespectful to the person I lost. What are your thoughts on that? I completely disagree, but I see it all the time too. And I have those same thoughts myself. All it really means is that you're still living. You're just having other thoughts about other areas of your life. Like, why is it not okay to be happy? Who said we're supposed to be sad all the time or that it's disrespectful? 
And it's interesting when you dig into like, what is your brain offering you there? What's the details of that rule? Is it like, you have to be sad for how long exactly? Six days? Six months? Six years? Six years and six days? Like, what is it? So that then you can kind of see, oh, this is actually just an idea that my brain made up. It's not even like a universal idea that everybody agrees on. Like how much laughter is okay? Like, can I laugh for five seconds? Can I laugh for five minutes? Like start to kind of just see the details so that you can kind of see it's ridiculous. And that in fact, probably the person that you lost would want you to feel joy. Typically. Yeah. Maybe not always, but yeah, typically. You know, that's not a blanket statement, but I would imagine if you lost someone that you had a really healthy, beautiful, loving relationship with, that there would be desire to have a full life. Yeah. Yeah. And then our brain jumps up and judges us. So if we know that that is supposed to be a part of the life experience and of grief, and again, broadening up the definition of grief, not to just be one feeling or quote unquote negative feelings, it really is the totality of all of it, which can include joy, like the full range. So I think it's good to know that. And then so much compassion for all of us humans, most of which have not been taught how to handle our feelings, right? Most of us have just been taught how to avoid them or try to get away from them or, you know, whatever. So it makes sense that we might expect that if we start to let ourselves really feel something that we would be swallowed up, that we would go into some black hole. And, you know, we might not have a lived experience where we are allowing intense emotion to flow through and still doing life. So we might be worried that we can't do both at the same time. Then it is learning, okay, how do I actually allow a feeling to pass? So is this sort of, you have to feel to heal? I feel like the feelings just kind of wait for you if you don't. And I would say generally, if you're not feeling your feels, setting bereavement and grief aside, they surface. They do. And even if you get really, really good at not feeling your feelings, what I think happens is that you kind of end up in this, I call it the stagnation zone, like the emotional stagnation zone where, you know, maybe you're able to avoid a lot of intense negative emotion, but in doing so, you also limit your life such that you don't get to experience the good stuff either. I mean, Brene Brown says it beautifully. We can't selectively numb. Yeah. Right? We can't selectively numb our bad, negative, heavy emotions without numbing the good ones. But it makes so much sense why we end up in a place where that's a hard thing to want to do, right? To allow emotion. If we just weren't taught how, and we have maybe some really awful experiences. So, but I think it's a skill everyone can learn. And there's so many different ways to do it, you know? I think, you know, another maybe, maybe this is obvious, maybe it's not, but that there are grief coaches right? Just like you, Krista. And you don't have to be in it questioning, scratching your head, am I doing this right? Even though we've made it pretty clear there is no right or wrong. But there are people that can help you, that can hold you, that can invite you to experience and try on new challenges. And that that can be so helpful. Yeah. I love the internet for that reason. Because it can be such an isolating experience or, you know, maybe it's a particular kind of loss and you don't have anybody in your world that understands that kind of loss, you can find those people. You can find other people who specialize in that kind of loss or who have been through that kind of loss. There's so many opportunities for community out there now. So before we sign off, is there any other tip that you want to leave listeners with? One of the things we didn't talk about that I get asked about a lot, which is 
what do I say to somebody who's had a loss? How do I not say something I'm going to later regret? And so that's a valuable thing to talk about. And to keep it simple, what I would offer is that you just really want to examine where you're coming from before you speak. And if we're kind of seeing life through the lens of emotions are problems that we must solve, and we don't really have a large tolerance for other people to be uncomfortable in our presence without us getting super uncomfortable, that's usually when we say things that other people receive as minimizing. They're in a better place. Don't worry, you're young. You'll find someone else or it was part of God's plan. We say those things usually because we see somebody else hurting and we don't know how to be okay when they're not. And so if we can do that work and we can remind ourselves, I am okay. And even when they are not okay, they are okay. And so I don't have to say anything to try to make them feel differently because how they feel isn't actually a problem. Then the goal can be just to be with someone, which when you're the someone feels really good, right? To have somebody just witness what you're going through as opposed to try to talk you out of what you're going through. And then things get a lot easier. You don't have to worry about so much what the words are because you know that your intention is is not to minimize or flower it up, right? But just to be you with another human in grief, which is a human experience. And that the person probably isn't looking to feel better in that moment, even though we might think, that's the outcome. How do I cheer them up? No, it's like that person just needs to be held. And that includes not necessarily physically, perhaps that is, but emotionally held. Of like, here's my yuck. Can you be with it and with me at the same time? Mm -hmm. On that note, thank you, Krista. All of Krista's resources and information will be in the show notes. So please reach out if you're looking for a coach that you know is so passionate. This is your bread and butter. This is what you live and breathe. And it's a beautiful thing. So we will catch everyone later. 